God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you, wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. In other words, that's the second chapter in the entire Bible. We're going through the book of beginnings. And that's where we're going to be today in chapter 2. We'll also show those verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. Today we're continuing in our beginning series, going through the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Hasefer Bereshit, as we say in Hebrew. Hasefer, the book, Bereshit, a beginning. And now we're ready to look at chapter 2 and the beginnings of man. That's what I'd like to talk to you about today is the beginnings of man. So let's look at chapter 2 together and start at verse 1 in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all of His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all of the work which God had created and made. Now, instead of reading through the whole chapter today, we're going to talk about these things in a group of verses at a time. So we'll read maybe a couple or three or four, maybe even five verses, and then we're going to discuss that. That way it'll be easier for you to follow along because this particular chapter has a lot in it. It's only 25 verses, but wow, are there some important things in this chapter. So I want to make sure that you get this, so fasten your seatbelts. You're in for a fast ride today. Now in talking about these first verses, any Jewish person recognizes these. It's the verses about the seventh day, resting on Shabbat. How God rested in it. And He did rest on the seventh day. Now God didn't need to rest on the seventh day. He wasn't tired. He rested because His work was done. He rested to give a pattern to us who would follow regarding the structure in time that it's a seven-day week. Did you ever think about that? Is how did man come up with a seven-day week? There's no reason that all these different cultures would be able to come up with the same number of days in a thing called a week. They could have had a five-day week. They could have had a three-day week. They could have had a 10 or a 20-day week. They could have called a week anything. But all of the cultures in the world came up with a seven-day week, and that goes back to thousands and thousands of years. And that's because God passed that down to man. It came from a single source. It came from God. And we'll talk about those things a little bit later as we get into Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, in the examples of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 and on from there how that all the cultures really came from them in that day, if you think about it, after the great flood. And so they all knew about these things. 
And God gave a seven-day week as an example to man. And He gave resting on that seventh day as the example to man. Not because God was tired, but because God was finished creating the universe. Now, if you've ever looked at the universe, you remember the past two or three messages on the book of Genesis that we've already gone through. God was pretty busy, it looks like to me. Oh, that's magnificent work that God did. The seventh day is permanently ingrained in man. We're on a seven-day cycle because God was on a seven-day cycle. And it said in these verses we just read, God blessed the seventh day and He sanctified it. He sanctified the seventh day because it was a gift to man for rest and replenishment. And most of all, because the Shabbat, as we say in Hebrew, the Sabbath, is a shadow of the rest available through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is real important. I want to say that again. God blessed the seventh day and He sanctified it. He set it apart. It was very special to Him. God could have rested any time other than the seventh day. But it was a gift to man for rest so that man could refresh during a time of rest and replenishment. Nobody likes to work all the time. Nobody likes to get up every single morning early and go in and work all those hours and work the day away. You need a time to rest. Just like your body needs a time to rest in sleep, your mind needs a time to rest itself too. Your spirit needs a time of rest so that you can get back into that relationship with God, walk with Him, talk with Him, and think about the wonderful things that He's done in your life over the past week. That rest is a gift from God. But some people try to treat it so legally like it has hundreds of restrictions that you have to do on this Sabbath or Shabbat rest. And you must do this and you must do that. You cannot press that elevator button. You have to get a Gentile to press that button for you if you want to use that elevator to go down or to come back up or anything like that. And some people will get into the stories and just a little bit have ridiculous restrictions on it. But God didn't give it to you for a burden. He didn't give it to you so that you could be righteous by doing all of these dozens and dozens and some people even have hundreds of rules regarding the Shabbat. He didn't give it to you for that reason. It was meant for you to rest. Now how are you going to rest if you're busy trying to keep a few hundred rules that people say you have to keep on the Shabbat? Does that make sense? How are you going to rest if you're busy trying to remember and keep all those rules. That doesn't sound like rest to me. Maybe you need to get back in touch with the Word of God and see what God intended for you to do with the Shabbat or that seventh day. Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 16 through 17, and Galatians 4, 9, verse, uh, 4, verse 9 and verse 11, make it clear that Christians are not to under any obligation to observe the Shabbat today because Jesus fulfilled the purpose and the plan of the Shabbat for us. And in us, we have rest when we come to Him. Christians don't lose the Shabbat. Every day is a day of rest for them because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every day is specially set apart to God 
They can cease from their labors of trying to work their way into the kingdom of heaven through works of righteousness and keeping the law. They can cease from that, take rest from all of that, and just trust in the finished work of the Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, as we say in English. We're free from the legal obligation of Shabbat, but we can't ignore the importance of a day of rest either. God built us so that we need a day of rest. We're also commanded to work six days, and by the way, that's important too, you know. But it says in the Bible that He rested from all of His work and did that as an example for you and I. God rested on the seventh day of creation. He didn't institute the Shabbat to show us His rest for His own sake. God doesn't get tired. He didn't take the Shabbat off by Himself because He was tired. Jesus said as people were talking to Him because He was healing on the Sabbath day, Jesus said to the people, My Father, who's in heaven, has been working unto now, and I also have been working. The Father's still working on the Shabbat. He's healing. He's touching you. He's guiding you. He's speaking to your heart. He's doing His work. He wants you to understand the real meaning of a rest. And the rest and what it really means is to trust in God and stop all that futile, efforts that you try to do to make yourself righteous before God. It only makes you bitter. You know what I mean. You start thinking that God is requiring all of that to you and after a while you just give up and you go, what does He want from me anyway? What is He expecting of me to do all these 613 commandments? So anyway, you don't need to remember all those. You, know, you don't need to look through that book and, oh, and worry about missing them or keeping them. You don't need to do that. God gave you the law to show you that you could never, ever keep all of the things in the law all of the time. And you know what that means? If you miss even one time, it means you've sinned. And you know what? People with sin cannot enter the sinless kingdom of heaven, only through God's atoning sacrifice through His Son, Jesus Christ, can you continually be perfectly clean and pure. When God looks at you, He doesn't see your works of righteousness. He looks and sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why in the example of Passover, He said, when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of your house, when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of your house, I will pass over that house in judgment. He won't judge the people inside because he saw the blood of the blemish-free lamb. And when we talk about Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, we're talking about the blemish-free lamb of God, the one who did not have any sin so that he would qualify and when God looks at you and I who believe on Jesus, He sees not our works, how much we messed up, how much we did good. He sees the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that is sinless perfection. You and I aren't perfect, but the perfect Son of God came and took our place on the cross so that we could cease from our works and enter into His rest. That's what Shabbat is all about. Now, 
I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that are done and the rules that are put in place. There's an area in Jerusalem, I read the story one time, that it was a neighborhood of religious Orthodox Jewish men and women and their families. And they kept Shabbat as good as they could. They were very, very strict on keeping Shabbat. And Shabbat, they figured out they can only walk a certain distance from their house. And if they walk beyond that distance, then they weren't just relaxing and having fun on Shabbat. No, they were working because they were walking a long distance away. But the Bible had said, you know, you're not to you go this far on Shabbat and everything. And the rabbis interpreted it to mean this far and this far. And they put all these restrictions on it. So then the Jewish people were sort of getting kind of a little bit bitter about that. They, they were trying to work their way around it. I won't say they're bitter, but they were trying to work around it. My people, Jewish people, were pretty good at finding loopholes, ways around the rules. And God knew that, you see. So what they did was they looked at the rules about Shabbat and how far they could walk, and they said, well, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? Well, it says that our place, our house, is where we should remain around that area and in that place. But people were saying, well, I'd like to go out and visit other places. I'd like to go to a store. I'd like to go out to eat maybe and do this and do that on Shabbat and everything. But it's over there and it's a further distance away. I can't go over and see this other family. I can't visit my friend over here. They can't come over to me because it's too far away. So they said, well, we got to stay in our place. Abayt Shalachem. Okay, your, your place, you see. And you got to stay in the place. Well, they said, well, what is a house then? What is a place where you live? And they said, well, let's think about that. Let's define that. It's really a place that's got these walls around it. It's got walls. A room has four walls around it. The house has got these walls. That pretty much defines a place where you live. It's got a wall around, wall around it, and it's got a roof over it. And, you know, but it's got walls. And they said, well, maybe we can find a loophole. They looked outside, and they go, what are those lines up there, those electrical lines with those things, those telephone posts holding those lines? What are those? Because they go around our whole community. And they said, well, those are telephone lines, telephone poles. Sometimes nowadays they put all those underground. But back in those days, they put them above ground on these tall telephone poles. You've seen them. And so anyway, some really clever person said, ah, he was a smart one. He said, I know what we can do. We'll say that those telephone posts... And those wires in between those telephone posts that go all around our community, we will say that those are our walls on Shabbat. They're our walls. Now we live in a much bigger place. Now we can still stay within our walls and walk all these other distances to see whoever we want to see. And they did that. But then after a while, one rabbi said, well, I think that there's a problem here. I understand that those are walls, but, you know, a, a house has more than walls. And they go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, a house, if you're really treating these things here as walls, 
and you're calling this your place on Shabbat so you can walk back and forth in as far as you want, then you really need to have a door and some windows too. And they go, ah, oy vey, you're right. You're right, we need to have a door and windows. And so, no kidding, true story, they got a door and they hung it on one of the telephone poles. Now their place with all these walls had a door and a window here and there too. Now they legally, technically had a place. Aha, God, we found a way that we could get around your rule. They didn't say that outwardly, but their heart was thinking like, oh, I did a pretty good job there of getting around that rule. I'm pretty smart. God looks down on him and says, your heart is in the wrong place. Your heart doesn't care about keeping my laws. Your heart is set on getting around my laws. That's the way it is, you see. But some, sometimes the, the rabbis make these rules. Now, look, I have many friends who are Jewish rabbis. I grew up in a Jewish family. I was not a religious Jew. Uh, and guess what? 80% of the Jews on earth probably aren't religious either. One's in America. Uh, they may say that they belong to a synagogue, but when's the last time you actually saw your rabbi? When's the last time you went to a synagogue? I know about 20%, maybe 30% of you can say, well, it wasn't that long ago. Some of you only show up on the holidays when there's food to eat, when there's a time to visit, just social things. You're not really concerned about the things of God. And in Israel, only 20% of the Jewish population in Israel today is religious. 80% is secular. 80% of the Jewish people, the chosen people, are secular. Now, I'm not saying they're not chosen. They are chosen. They are chosen and they are a special treasure and a special possession of the Lord God Almighty. And He is yet going to do amazing things with them. But you look at some of the rules that they made. And in these communities like the one I just explained about the walls and the telephone lines and the door and the windows hanging on them, and there was also another rabbi who was approached by one of the ladies who lived in the Jewish community. And she said, Rabbi, when I leave my place, I have to carry some things. And he said, no, you must not carry anything or that would be work and you would be working on the Shabbat. And she said, well, I have to at least carry the key to my front door so I can lock my place up when I leave and unlock it when I get back. He goes, no, you carry that key and that's work. You can't do work on Shabbat. He said, but I got an idea. What's that thing that you're wearing around your wrist there? She goes, that's a charm bracelet. They took one of her charms off of that charm bracelet and they took that key and they put it on her charm bracelet. Now, it wasn't a key to the place. Now, it was a charm. And jewelry is permitted to wear on Shabbat. Problem solved. You see, this is what people do when they try to make loopholes in the law of God. Several years ago, we had our congregation there in the middle of South Tel Aviv. Big place. One day a Jewish lady came in after our service. She was an Orthodox religious Jewish lady. She was talking to us and she was just in tears. She said, I don't know what to do. 
She said, my rabbi is, is talking crazy stuff. I go, well, what do you mean? Well, he said, we cannot even pick our nose. I'm sorry for the illustration. We cannot even pick our nose on Shabbat because we might move something in our nose when we do it. And she was in tears. She goes, I don't know if I can keep doing this. This is just, this is just unrealistic. And other rabbis are laughing at our rabbi. And I go, you know, you can rest in Jesus Christ. The lady, after a while, gave her life to the Lord. She entered into the rest of God. Now, as we continue on through these verses, Genesis 2, verse 4 through 7, it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist used to go up from the earth, and it watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now let's stop for a little while, and let's talk about those verses, verses 4 through 7. He says this is the history of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth have a genealogy, just like you and I have a genealogy. You may not know who your ancestors were, but the heavens and the earth have a genealogy, and it's recorded in the book of Genesis in chapter 1 when it says that God made them, what day He made them on. You see, the first day. And that genealogy of the heavens and the earth shows that God is the one who made it. This history of the heavens and earth was either given to, by God, it was given by God to either Moses or Adam, recording the history of God's seven-day creation. As God gave it to them, they faithfully wrote it down. Moses eventually made these first five books of the Bible and took these accounts. But there was something no human was present to witness. We have it on faith that God did these things. And it's easy if you look up in the night sky, and especially as I do with a telescope, and you look far, far away at these huge distances and the huge things that you see, you understand that those things don't happen by accident. And certainly those things didn't happen because any man or anybody had anything to do with it other than God. He's the creator of all things. It says, In that day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. It's strange because, oh, it's wonderful. In this particular verse that we just read, it's the first time in the Bible that the term, the Lord God, made the earth and the heavens. In your English Bible, it says Lord, and God is Elohim in the Hebrew. But when it says Lord in your English Bible and Lord God after it, you see, with that Lord is really the Hebrew letters yud Hey vav Hey, yud Hey vav Hey, And that is the impronounceable name of God. We say it's impronounceable because Jewish and Christian scholars alike agree that no one really knows how to pronounce it because the little signs over and above and in the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are meant to tell you whether it sounds like E, I, O, or U, or something like that. 
says how to pronounce the vowels. But those vowels over that word have been forgotten. And people really don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. So when the Jewish religious people get to the yud Hey vav Hey, the four Hebrew letters that sometimes Christians pronounce as Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah, the Hebrew speakers, the Jewish people, will simply say Hashem, meaning in Hebrew simply the name. Ha is the name is Shem. Ha Shem, the name. Because they don't want to take the chance on pronouncing it wrong and getting God angry at them, you see. But in your English Bible, we usually put it in all capital letters and call it Lord, Lord God. And when you see that in all capital letters and even in smaller letters in some instances, in some translations of the Bible, that will be the Hebrew letters Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh. Some people say, well, if I take those letters, which are all consonants, they're not vowels, if I take those letters and I just kind of use my imagination, it kind of looks like Yahweh. And so now you have people calling him Yahweh. But we really don't know how to pronounce those. We know that God is also called Adonai elsewhere in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, as you'd say in English. We know that he is called Adonai, so some people say, well, look, in Hebrew, the Adonai has the nikodot, or the little points and letters and everything around it. So why don't we take the little nikodot over the vowels in the word Adonai and put them over the yud he vav And they did that, and they started pronouncing it Jehovah. Now, understand something. There is no J in the Hebrew alphabet. There's a Y. And so you would really say Yehovah. However, Christian scholars and Jewish scholars alike agree, no, that's not the way you do it. We're just putting something there, but we really don't know, and we really could be pronouncing it wrong. So the Jewish people, when they see, when they see Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, they simply say, well, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm going to pronounce it as Hashem, the name. And when they say the name like that, they mean the name of God. And so they're reverent about it. But if you say Lord, that's fine too. You know, the word Lord in English, in Anglo-Saxon heritage, actually came from wealthy people and landowners who had a habit of keeping their houses open so that the poor people could come in and get food from them since they had so much money and so much food. So they would keep their house open at time. And because one of the ancient words for bread and loaf of bread was actually taken from the word Lord, these people were called lords. And that's why even today in Europe, in some ruling circles, you have these people in the government who are well-to-do, and they're called lords. But if you take it over to the English that we use today in the Bible, that's an interesting little piece of history, isn't it? Because Jesus is the bread who came down from heaven. These people who gave poor people something to eat were called lords because they were taking of the loaf of bread and the bread itself which was taken from the word for Lord and so they were called lords themselves because they were people were saying 
These are the bread people. These are the people who give us bread, who give us food, you see. So now if you look at your Bible, now when you see that word Lord, He's the bread of life who came down from heaven to give life to the world. He is our Lord, and He's the Lord God Almighty. And His body, like the bread of Passover, the unleavened bread, His body was broken for us, and His blood was shed for us, that whoever believes on Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. By believing on His name, your sins are forgiven. So it's interesting where that came from. But then God says in this area of verses, He said, before any plant of the field was in the earth. And He says, because the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth. You see, God created vegetation on the third day of creation. We know that from Genesis 1, verses 11 through 13. But man was not yet created to care for the vegetation of the earth. And there was no rain. But a thick blanket of water vapor in the outer atmosphere that was created on the second day of creation, you'll see, he separated the waters below from the waters above. A thick blanket of vapor in that outer atmosphere was making things different. You didn't have rain at that time. But instead, because of the moisture, there was a series of evaporation and condensation that would happen every day. And as the heat of the day came in, the moisture from the ground would evaporate. And then during the cool of the night, it would settle back down, and we know that as dew, but it's condensation. And it was so heavy in that time because of the water cloud that was above the skies, that's the way that the ecosystem worked at that time. So we didn't have rain until the time of the flood, and that was a surprise, and that was a lot of rain, and probably that icy shell of water far above the earth's sky had somehow been, uh, been destroyed or been broken up and it fell as rain as it got down in the atmosphere. The atmosphere warmed it up again from being in the cold of space to now being going through the atmosphere. It started warming up, turned back into water and rained and rained and rained 40 days and 40 nights. Also the fountains of the deep were broken up. There you had the global flood. But then it also says in the verses that we read just now, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And when God created him, he used the most basic element, the dust of the ground. You know, I've mentioned to you before that Adam's name meant ground. It meant dirt. We say in Hebrew, Adam. Adam. Why did we call him Adam? That's how they say Adam. It's because he came from another Hebrew word, Adama. Adama. You'd add an A onto an A onto the end of Adam and you get Adama. Well, what's so special about Adama, Pastor Stephen? That's a Hebrew word for dirt. Adam came from the dirt. And that's why the Lord said, and he called him Adam because he was taken from the dirt of the earth, from the dirt of the ground. God created him. He made him out of the most basic element, the dust of the ground. There's nothing spectacular in what man is made of, only in the way that the basic things are organized by God. 
When the Bible speaks of dust, it's talking of something of little worth. It's associated with lowliness and humility. Dust isn't evil. It isn't anything. But it is next to nothing. Dust is what we're made of. But your spirit was created in the image of God to live forever. And then it's said in these verses that after God formed man from the dust of the ground, He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Understand something. The Hebrew word for spirit, like we would use in, in speaking of the Holy Spirit of God, is ruach is the word for spirit. Guess what the word for wind is? Ruach, same word. Otodavar, we'd say in Hebrew. We'd say it's the same, this or that. It's the same thing. It's the wind. It's the spirit. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. With divine breath, man became a living being. Not like other forms of animals. They also had breath. But only man had that living soul, that spirit created in the image of God. Now think about this. When God breathed into the nostrils of man, the breath of life, he didn't have to do that. He could have just stood back and said, breath. He just could have said, heartbeat, lungs working, breath. But this was very personal. God took his own breath, his own spirit, and breathed into man the breath of life. Not only does man have the, uh, the fact that he is created in the very image of God, eternal spirit, but he even lives because of the breath of God himself was breathed into his nostrils. I'm already out of time. I meant to go further through this chapter today, but wow, I am so excited about going through Genesis. And the rest of this chapter, we've got a lot more to talk about. So we're going to end it right there. I know uh, Pastor Jason Duff, whom you hear every once in a while, and he gets to this point and he sees that he's well along in his sermon. He says like, well, we've got to land this plane. Well, that's what I'm saying now. We've got to land this plane. So I want to continue this about Adam's life in the Garden of Eden next week and everything. And we're going to go through this. I don't want to rush. I don't want to cheat you out of any detail here. I want to make sure that you and I are taking a journey that answers questions. A journey that reveals and opens God's Word to us. I want to make sure that we are reading the Word of God and understanding it. Oh, to next week is going to be so special. Oh, I, I can't wait to talk about that with you, about that rib that God took from Adam. whole bunch of science in that. Oh, I can't wait. It's going to be special. Don't miss it. But that's going to wrap it up for today. And let's continue the rest of it next week. Now, as we've gone through this, we've talked about how God has begun things. That's only appropriate to speak of the beginnings of all of these things, of man, of 
animals, of plants, of the universe, all of these things. Next week we're going to talk about the entry of sin into the world. As we finish up chapter 2, we're going to go into the first part of chapter 3. And that's a tragedy of sin coming into the world. But don't worry because we're also going to talk about the glorious plan that God put in place to restore man from that sin and to save man from the death that sin brings. You don't want to miss this service next week. You be here. You invite other people. Amen? Why don't you give your life to God today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. And He'll answer you and He'll rescue you from all that darkness, that fog that you're in. And He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given newness of life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all that old bad history away. You'll be completely new, given a new start and a new life, everlasting life in heaven. And that's guaranteed by God Himself. We want you to have an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. Just repeat after me. God, I do want to know You and to have real peace in life. I believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you, and He's already started working in your life. A seed has been planted deep down in your heart. Over time, you'll begin to see the wonderful changes that He's making in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him in His Word, and talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do amazing things in your life.